All right. Well, hey, if you have a uh, Bible or a device, let me encourage you to take it and open it to Romans chapter 1. You might also, or in place of, either way, reach inside your worship folder and pull out the message notes. It's got the passage that uh, we're going to look at and some blank space there if uh, something significant shows up that you want to remember later and write down there in your notes, you can do so on that page as well. The, uh, the letter of Romans, to the Romans, stands as the clearest and most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine in all of the scriptures. Paul begins this book by discussing the big problem, which is the sinfulness of all humanity. Tim Keller says, here's the gospel, you're more sinful than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And so you see, all of us are under the wrath of God, under condemnation, because we are sinful and God is holy. But God in his grace offers us justification by faith in Jesus. And it's made possible only through his shed blood for us on the cross. Someone has said everything has its price, but the only price that could buy back a lost soul was the shed blood of our innocent Savior. And so when we are justified by God, we receive redemption because Christ's blood covers our sin. You see, when we call out to Jesus in faith, we are not simply pardoned from our unrighteousness, but rather we received Christ's righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. So that we stand righteous in the sight of God. And the theme that runs through Paul's entire letter to the Romans is the revelation of God's righteousness in his plan of salvation. It's what the Bible calls the gospel, this good news. John Calvin said, when anyone understands this apostle, I'm sorry, this epistle, he has a passage open to the understanding of the whole scriptures. J.I. Packer Packer said, there's one book in the New Testament which links up almost everything that the Bible contains, the book of Romans. You see, in this book of Romans, Paul shows how human beings lack God's righteousness because of sin. That's chapters 1 to 3. And it shows that we receive God's righteousness when God justifies us by faith. That's chapters 4 and 5. And that, it, and that it demonstrates God's righteousness by being transformed, we do, by being transformed from rebels to followers. 
That's chapter 6 through 8. It confirms God's righteousness when God saves the Jews. That's chapters 9 through 11. And it applies his righteousness in practical ways by the way that we are called to live in chapters 12 to 16. That's the book of Romans. And so let's jump into our passage for today. Hopefully you have it there in front of you. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 8. It says, first, Paul is speaking, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. All over the known Christian world, the church in Rome is being talked about because of their faith. Now, no one would be surprised if this were the church in Jerusalem, say, the spiritual capital of the Mediterranean world, if that were happening from that church, that would kind of be expected. But in Rome, the capital of the pagan world, there is a thriving community of Christian believers. And note what it is that these people are being reported about. It wasn't the size of their church. It wasn't their great preacher. It wasn't their incredible worship band or how big or nice their building was, if they had one, which, by the way, at this time, no one did yet. What was being spoken of was their faith. Their faith in Christ was so deep and so unwavering that it had created quite a buzz. I wonder how many times today... Does the secular world look at a church and say, you know, that group of people, boy, they really seem to have a genuine spiritual life going on. They, they seem like what real Christians ought to be. Well, that's what was going on here at this, at this church in Rome. And Paul goes on then, verse 9, he says, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that, I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. Now, remember that this wasn't a church that Paul had planted. Somehow, we don't, we don't know how, but this church had begun and prospered without the Apostle Paul ever having been there or ever having communicated with it outside of verbal messages, perhaps sent by travelers. And so, verse 11, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul loved these Christians in Rome. And he wanted to be able to spend time with them for the purpose, says in verse 12, 
of mutually edifying each other. You know, the goal of edification, of encouragement, is to inspire another person with courage and spirit or confidence. And, and while encouragement is considered a spiritual gift, it's certainly something that every believer should make a part of his or her relationship. Verse 12 here has meaning to me because back when Janet and I were beginning to date 4,000 years ago, we picked verse 12 to be the theme verse of our relationship. We wanted right from the start that the primary aspect of our relationship would be to encourage each other's faith. And that as we grew closer to each other, at the same time we would be growing closer to Jesus. And as we grew to love each other, we would grow to love Jesus more. And so I want to challenge you to make sure you have mutually edifying relationships. If you're dating... Listen to me, friend. It's not enough to just ask, is this other person a Christian? You know, the better question to ask is, do they passionately love Jesus? It's not enough that they make your liver quiver. But will you both quiver at the sight of Jesus more as a result of your relationship? How about if you're married? Is Jesus at the center of your marriage? How about your friendships? At the core of your friendships, isn't, isn't your mutual love for Ohio State football as much as it is your mutual love for Jesus? You know, I have at times had friends who definitely were not helping me walk closer to Jesus. Maybe you have too. Maybe you do now. And maybe you need to get rid of those friends. Or at least change the relationship that you have with those friends and make sure that your best friends, your primary friends, the friends that you spend the most time with are people who you are mutually encouraging, mutually edifying each other. In our small groups, you know, it, it, it's not enough just that we come together and have a nice Bible study once a week. But rather that you have community where you're at the level with each other, where you are mutually encouraging each other. To know and to love and to serve Jesus more and more. Boy, is that happening in your small group? Is that happening in your friendships, in your marriage, in your dating, in your relationships? I believe Paul's words here challenge us to that. Well, he keeps going, verse 13. He says, I do not want you 
to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I've planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And I'm, I'm obligated, both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. See, Paul longed to come to Rome in order to help them better reach spiritually lost people. And almost as a footnote here, he explains why that he's so eager to preach the gospel there. In verse 15, it, he says it's because he's in debt to Jesus for a price that he can never repay. You know, what does it say about our understanding of the gift of God that so many of us feel no indebtedness, no obligation to Christ at all? Well, Paul had a sense of obligation, a sense of urgency to point others to Jesus. And I wonder what steps we might take individually, collectively, towards being the kind of people who point others to Jesus. See, we must keep a passion for reaching spiritually lost people front and center in our lives. Now, I know that we don't all have the gift of evangelism. But I think we must all deeply care about seeing people get saved. I must always be central in our minds and our hearts and our prayers. I think this is important because in our day, the majority of Western Christians have somehow turned Christianity into being mainly about them, about us, about the already reached. Rosaria Butterfield, who has become more and more one of my favorite authors, talks about being in a post-Christian world. And I think we would agree with that, that even in America, a, a nation founded on Christian principles, it's not that way anymore, right? We live in a post-Christian world. But she said most of the time when we hear that, what we hear is, oh no, because of that, we've got to build higher walls to kind of keep all that ickiness out. She said when the truth is, it's because of that we need to be tearing down the walls because otherwise people won't know. People won't hear unless we have the burden to build relationships in a way that we can share with people of Jesus' love for them and their need for him. We need to tear down the walls. Well, Paul longed to tear down the walls to come to Rome and, and to help that church continue 
to tear down the walls, to spiritually lost people. And he says in verse 16, a verse that we've heard, some of us have memorized. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. You know, Paul had written in other places that the gospel message seemed foolish to Gentiles, 1 Corinthians, and that it was a stumbling block to Jews. A crucified Messiah seemed to be a contradiction in terms to Jews. And a crucified Jew seemed like foolishness to Romans who despised Jews in general. But Paul says, no, it's the whole basis of his identity. And so he is anything but ashamed of the gospel message. Someone put it this way, expanding on Paul's words here in verse 16. They says this. They says this. They say this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. And my pace is set. My gait is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I negotiate at the table of the enemy. I ponder at the poor, at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. That's good stuff, isn't it? You missed a really good place to say amen in there, I think. Paul says he's not ashamed of the power of, of the gospel that, that allows salvation to take place. Verse 17, he says, For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith 
from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, God's righteousness was the core of Paul's entire message. And so there's three key words here in these last couple of verses in today's passage, verse 16 and 17, that I want us to really focus on, that I want you to to contemplate this week, to let them come to your mind. They're the words power, righteousness, and faith. Power, righteousness, and faith. Let's just spend a, a little bit of time on it. First, Paul says that the gospel is about power. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The word here for power is dunamos, from which we get the word dynamite. Every time I say that, I picture Jimmy Walker going, dynamite! Got to be a certain age to even know what that's about, but dynamite. We know what dynamite is. It's powerful stuff, right? See, this gospel... This good news that rescues me from hell, that saves me from my sin, that makes me right with the holy God, it's powerful. The Paul says, why would anybody be ashamed of that? Second word is is righteousness. You see, it's all about righteousness. Verse 17, it says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. See, here's the deal about righteousness. I'm not, and Jesus is. Isn't that the long and the short of it? And so, Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus makes His righteousness available to me. And in exchange, he takes my unrighteousness on himself. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. You will never get a better deal than that. And then finally, this transfer... Of righteousness is only available through that third word, through faith. He ends verse 17 saying, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. You see, it's not my efforts. It's 100% Jesus and 0% me. It's not 90% Jesus and 10% me. It's not 50-50 Jesus in me. It's all Jesus. And Paul here speaks against any sense of works-related righteousness because, you see, works-related righteousness will either lead us to self-righteous delusion our faith-leaving frustration. It'll either cause us to think we're better than somebody else because 
we're doing a little better than somebody else and delude ourselves into thinking somehow we're more righteous than the next guy. Or it will lead us to the point of just caving under the frustration of never being able to do enough. Many have abandoned faith, I fear, having never actually known true saving faith that's only available by Jesus alone. And that's why around here it is all about Jesus all the time. It's only through faith in Jesus. And so let me ask you, no more important question than this tonight, friend. Do you have saving faith in Jesus alone? Martin Luther, who I mentioned just a minute ago, great reformer of the church, came to better understand God's grace as he studied these verses. In the original Greek. And it forever changed his view. You see Martin had assumed. That God's righteousness was something that we had to work very hard to get. And so he did. He worked very hard to get it. And the harder he worked the more he realized he came up short. That he could never do enough to attain the perfection that God demands. And then one day, studying these verses, the light came on to him. And he saw that in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. That's made available to us by faith. Not by my best efforts. But by believing faith in the efforts of Jesus on the cross in my place. And so in the course of this letter. This letter to the Romans. Paul will explain how God is able to declare sinners to be righteous because of Jesus' work on the cross. And when he says from faith to faith, he's emphasizing that this entire process of being declared righteous comes to us from start to finish by faith, not by our effort. But only through receiving the efforts of Jesus on the cross. In my place. Dying the death that I deserved. Paying for my sin. The sin that separates me from a holy God. And so as I kind of wrap things up. Let me just ask you simply this. Have you taken that step of faith. Not what your parents did. Not what your spouse has done. Not 
what the family that you grew up around, how they responded, but you. Have you put all of your faith and trust in Jesus alone to save you? If you haven't, there is nothing more important than you could do tonight than to talk to someone so that you can be clear that you've taken that step to be right before a holy God through the shed blood of Jesus. For those of you, many of us in this room who've taken that step, let me just ask you, are you living out a life of faith? The cross doesn't just apply when we come to that place of salvation. It applies all the way through. Are you loving Jesus? Are you serving him? Are you telling others about him? Well, if the Holy Spirit has churned up something in your soul, then let me encourage you here in just a minute when we stand to sing, that while we're singing those last couple songs, there'll be people in the back who would love to pray with you about this or anything else. And so let me encourage you to take advantage of that. Let me pray for us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, again, we're, we're speechless at the foot of the cross. Lord, sometimes those of us who've who've been around your goodness for so long, it almost becomes commonplace to us. Forgive us, Jesus. Forgive us for taking for granted the high price you paid for my sin. To make that great exchange, to allow me to be right, to be righteous, before God, not on the basis of anything I do, but on, totally on the basis of what you did. And so, Jesus, I would just ask right now that you'll speak to us. Lord, that you will give us the wisdom to hear whatever it is that your spirit might want to say to us tonight, whatever step your spirit might prompt us to to move in direction, to take steps in that direction, Lord. Give us the wisdom to hear that and then give us the courage to take that step for your glory, I pray. Amen.